morning on November 20th, 2011. It's called No Joke. You will want to uh, turn to Isaiah 55. While you're turning there, I would like to tell you, since uh, it does not seem to be top of the mind recall for you, uh, Wednesday night we preached on Goyim Gone Wild, Gentiles Gone Wild. When Moses stepped down from the mountain and he saw the people's revelry, saw the things that they were doing, Exodus 32 says that the people were running wild, that they were out of control, and that they had become a laughing stock to their enemies. So Moses very simply stood for God and said, Who belongs to the Lord? This was a question for a people who were out of control, running wild, and had become a laughing stock to the enemy that had to be answered. And the way that it was answered is, he said three things. If you belong to the Lord, number one, come to me. Leave what you're doing and come to me. The gospel call of God is always leaving the life that you were in and moving closer to the Lord. The cure for running wild was coming to Jesus. The next thing that they were was out of control. And the cure for being out of control, he said, was strap a sword to your side. Now in ancient Israel, the sword was the instrument with which they lived by. You, like a soldier, had to have a gun. An ancient Israelite had to have a sword. Your warfare is not against flesh and blood, so your sword is not a weapon. It is your Bible. And when your life is out of control, we begin to put the Bible as part of us. It goes with us wherever we go. When we wake up, it's there. When we go to bed, it's there. The Word of God must be our constant companion. Even as Eve was pulled out of Adam's side, and the two then were rejoined and became one, you must become one with the Word of God. This is the only way to rein in a life that is out of control. The third thing that we spoke about was a laughing stock. When God's people do not act like Him, it makes us a laughing stock to the enemy. Every time some televangelist has a great fall, it provides jokes for late night TV for years to come. Yeah. Every time somebody who once stood for the Lord falls, it becomes a conversation of Thanksgiving Day dinner for families. It is a terrible thing. The way that we avoid being a laughing stock for the enemy or repairing our life if we have become that is to go forth and put the Word of God into practice. The Levites bore their swords and went out and separated their friends, their brothers, and their family who were not doing what was right. Now, that was our message Wednesday night, and we don't want to preach the whole thing again, but I did want to build on it today. Are you in Isaiah 55? Yes. Yes. In Isaiah 55, let us pick up in verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. When we just stop with that first verse, and we're not going to, but seek the Lord while He may be found means that there may be a time in your life that you cannot find Him. This is not a thought that is common for American Christians. We think that because we're Americans, when we speak, God is kind of like a heavenly genie. We say, gimme, gimme, my name is Jimmy, and then like Santa Claus, presents show up. When we call, He always has to answer. When we speak, He is like a genie in the sky who does what we ask. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. 
There are appointed times in a man's life where the Spirit of the Lord is drawing him. And you cannot be saved, John 6.44 says, unless the Spirit of the Lord is drawing you. So the call of God goes out to all mankind, but you feel that tugging at different times in your life. No one is safe in thinking, although I feel that tugging now, I can wait till later. You are not promised later. You're not promised that you'll live till later, number one. And number two, you're not promised to feel that or be granted that opportunity again. So the Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. One thing that you need to know is that if God drew you into this place, if he has been working in your life, leading you towards something, maybe you're not sure what it is. He will not hold your past against you. Instead, He will take it from you, credit it to His Son, to Himself, and pardon you. But this is not something to be taken lightly. Let's imagine that I committed a terrible crime. It's not hard for my mother to imagine. I was a bad kid. <laughs> and Matthew said... You know, Eric has a family. It breaks my heart that he's going to be in jail a long time. I will confess to that crime and go to jail for him. Would you think that that was a good thing, Patricia? Probably not. Patricia is the mother of Matthew. It is no small thing when one man takes credit for another's misdeeds. And the Lord of the universe says, I will pardon your sin. But he didn't pardon it just by saying it doesn't exist anymore. He charged his own son with it for you. That means then that the Lord takes seriously this whole process. Listen as he moves on. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Have you ever wondered how you could know what was in the mind of God then? If your thoughts are not his thoughts, if your ways are not his ways, as much as you look like him and are made in his image, we don't act like him. We don't think like him. There is only one way that you can know what is in the mind of God, and that is to read the word that he wrote. He said, but when I worship Jesus, I know the mind of God. The way that worshiping Jesus shows you the mind of God is he is the embodiment of the word. If this Bible is the Word of God, Jesus is like the major motion picture, the 3D version of the Word of God. He shows you what it looks like in practice. But if you want to know God's thoughts, you must read God's Word. Now, it's an amazing thing. I can give my children uh, a book that has to do with uh, good and evil. and Maybe it's got wizards or dragons or something in it. And they'll read 700 pages in a moment. But you hand someone a Bible and say, here, read this. Why? Why would that be? Because it is in our sinful nature to reject the thoughts of God. To reject knowledge of His ways. And instead, to claim that you know it already so that you don't actually have to examine your thoughts against His. How many people do you know, how many of you are the person that goes, I know what's in the Word. Really? 
So give me a quote from the book of Obadiah. Boy, it's quiet in here. Well, I, I know what's in the word, really. Did you know there's shipwrecks and snake bites? Did, did you know that a guy was killed on a toilet in the Bible? Yeah. How, how about the fact that God appointed a worm? A, a worm, a single worm. God himself tasked a worm with something. Did you know a donkey spoke in the Bible? I mean, there are all kind of things, in it, and we're convinced we know these things. But when it comes down to it, nobody wants to play Bible trivia. Why is that? Why can we name every song maybe written in 1980, but we don't want to play Bible trivia? This is because his thoughts are not our thoughts. We are slow in grasping what he has to say. Jesus' disciples spent three years with him. They had been raised in a culture that memorized the first five books of the Bible at a minimum, and he still looked at them regularly and said, are you still so dull? The unregenerate man has a very hard time grasping the Word of God. In fact, the Spirit has to show you what it means. Now, I'm just curious. When we're Christians for a year, two years, three years, five years, and we have not read all of God's Word, what are we really saying? What we're really saying is, Lord, I want just the beginning. Or, you know what? I want just the ending. Or, Lord, I found a prayer to a guy named Jabez because I saw his books at Walmart. That's the part that I want. I'm suggesting that if we don't embrace God's Word in its entirety, you're missing out on most of God. Because this is His character. This is His nature. And if we have been going to institutions that place no value on the actual Word of God, then what are we getting? If we get the mind of man, we'll get more of what we already have. My hope is that the Word of God will change our lives. Do you know why I have that hope? Because He spoke to me in 1993. And when He spoke to me in that moment, I saw the Bible differently than I ever had before. I knew it was the Word of God before, but not like I did in that moment. And I picked it up and I began to read it. That was 18 years ago. There's never been a day that's gone by that I'm aware of that I haven't read it since then. This changes a person. Mom, you, you can give testimony better than anybody in the room. Am I a different person today than I was then? Was I a different person the next month than I was the month before? Yes. If your own mother does not see a change in your life, I want to tell you, you are not born again. How could you be? She gave birth to you. She ought to know if there's a change in your life. This is an honest assessment, friends. It's a chance for a litmus test. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word. I want you to hear this. His word will accomplish a task. His word, when he sends it to you by way of it being coming off of this page and coming alive to you, it will water the soil of your heart. It will change you as a human being. So if you were the doctor here and the patient comes in and you know good and well that if they take the medicine, 
Such and such will happen. It will show up in their blood work. It will show up maybe in their complexion. It will change a scenario. And they come in month after month to see you for their checkup and nothing has changed. Is it not a reasonable question at some point to go, are you taking the medicine? And if the answer is no, then the next logical question is, why are you coming? See, but this is what we do with church. And if we're honest about the answer as to why we go, it's because going to the doctor makes us feel better. We don't actually want to put it into practice. We just want to go. And better than that, we'd like to be seen on our way. So people will know that we're really pretty good old people. Now, you may sit and think that that does not apply to you and you're free to do that. Maybe let's stretch and say, do you think that it applies to most of the people on your street? Then consider you live on the same street they did. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The Word of God will bring about a fundamental change in your life. One of the first things that happened in my life was my speech began to change. I was an artisan in all of the things that you are not supposed to say, articulate with all of the wrong expletives. And immediately, I didn't want to speak that way anymore. And better than that, had the power not to. More than that, my relationship with my girlfriend at the time began to change. More than that, my relationship with my parents began to change. Instead of looking for what I could get away with, I desired to honor them. My relationship with all authority changed because I read in Romans 13, the week I was born again, that God instituted authority. The Word of God begins to form for us a constitution for life. Hebrews 4.12, I won't, won't lie to you, I'm going to quote it. You can stay in Isaiah. Actually, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 3. You'll be ahead of me. Here comes Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. Hear this last part. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. If your thoughts aren't God's thoughts, His Word judges your thoughts. Since God's ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, CJ, when you have a thought, and then you read the Word of God, the Word of God will tell you whether your thought is right or not. The Word of God will literally show us how to think and how to act. There are certain things that we're not supposed to spend our time dwelling on. By the way, do you think that you could start on the East Coast, stare at the East Coast, and walk to the West Coast and make it there? Probably not. What you dwell at and what you look at on a daily basis, to some extent, is going to determine your destination. So let me ask you this week. We in America who say we have no idols. Did you watch a glowing box sitting in your living room, elevated off of the floor to eye level? more time than you've spent seeking God's will and His Word? Tell me we're not idolatrous. Yeah, 
See, we might as well say, you know, bless you, Lord, for the 23rd channel. It will guide me through the valley of the shadow of... You follow? This is not to beat you up. In fact, this is to let you know that you're in a smoke-filled room and there may be a fire. And I'm showing you where the exit is. The Word of God is our guide for living. Are you all in Hebrews 3? Yes. I'm not. Will you wait for me to get there? Yes. Hebrews is evading me at the moment. Third chapter of Hebrews, let's start in the first verse. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. I'd like to talk to you about that word fix for a moment. Therefore, heavenly brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. That word is kataneo. And it is a compound word. And the only reason I bring that up is because it's beautiful. Kata means to nail down. Nail means not your sensory perception like what you see or what you feel, but only the thoughts that come in your mind, your mental perceptions. Nail down your mental perceptions to Jesus. Everything that happens in our life, we are supposed to be fixing our thoughts, nailing them down upon Jesus. He is the standard. This is not what we hear normally, though. What we hear is, I do all right because I, whatever. Doesn't matter what comes next. I give money to the Red Cross. Uh, sometimes I throw some change in the plate at the church. I try to help people wherever I can. I've always tried to do what's right. That has nothing to do with comparing your life to Jesus. None of those things have anything to do with comparing your life for Jesus. Well, I'm all right because when I was eight, I, uh, I prayed a prayer at an altar. has nothing to do with nailing your thoughts down to Jesus. In fact, you might even say you could crucify your thoughts with Jesus so that you only have his left. You know why we're so absent of the thoughts of Jesus? Because we're absent of the words of Jesus. I don't want that to be true, but there has never been a more biblically ignorant generation, ever. Not, not ever in United States history. In the 17th century, the people who had colonized this country were men that had major portions of the scripture memorized. Our first presidents could quote the scripture without having speech writers. Today, when our presidents try to quote the scripture, they're either mocking it or they misrepresent it. The first colleges, the first institutions of higher learning in our country were there for further education in the scripture. And today, you can go to any Christian school, be it Catholic or Protestant. You can pull up <coughs> students at random and ask them, name six rivers in the Bible. If I ask you, name six rivers in the Bible, can you do it? You know, give me four mountains in the Bible. Can you quote a whole psalm? And we're like, oh, well, no, you know, my memory's just not that good. I bet you can quote the lyrics to the latest Britney Spears song. I bet you know the plot line to the last five or six Hollywood movies. We need to fess up. We need to go ahead and say, Lord, your ways are not my ways. And my ways need to change. I need to turn. Maybe the reason that our lives look the way they do so often is because we have not truly sought the advice and counsel of our Lord, the direction of our Lord. Instead, he's been kind of an 
afterthought. Isn't that worth asking? Is Jesus the predominant thought in your life? Or is Jesus the afterthought? Like when somebody's in the hospital, when somebody is uh, just died, when something happens. Is that when we think about Jesus? Or do we wake up and want to know what he's thinking about us each morning? Do we, during the day, long for his presence and want to know what he thinks about situations? When we go to bed at night, do we want to know, was he proud of how we lived that day? <coughs> was there something left undone that needs to be done tomorrow? This is what it means to walk with the Lord. And I'm afraid we've boiled it down so much to just a prayer at an altar or a sacrament at an altar that we're devoid of an actual relationship with Him. And so this paves the way for everybody to go, we all serve God in our own way. Really? Because it doesn't look anything like the Bible says a walk with God looks. My own biological father tells me that he walks with the Lord. I feel close to God. That's very difficult to accept. I think it's data denial. Why is it difficult to, am I saying he's a bad person? Am I being judgmental? I'm just saying if you tell me that you're an orange tree and I don't see any oranges, it's very difficult for me to acknowledge that you're an orange tree. The Bible is supposed to be a mirror that we look into and we can ask. Lord, am I bearing the kind of fruit that you've called me to bear? Are you all awake this morning? Yes. Have I already hurt your feelings? Is that the problem? Because I haven't really yet got going. It's going to get worse. <laughs> Since what we dwell on as believers often determines our destination, I think it's worth looking at one of the stories that happened in history. I've been to the site. And it is so monumental that it scarred the globe. Turns me to Genesis 19. There is she. 19. Tell me when you're there. He's trying to get you to speak. Some of our African brothers and sisters are gone today. Some of our Hispanic brothers and sisters are gone today. And you white people don't know how to talk. <laughs> understood that. Where does that quiet, reserved, Germanic type thing come from? Where we believe that conversation is it's like we should put an a English pipe and a driving hat on all of you and you just contemplate. <laughs> I love you to death. We're all family here. You really can't speak. It, it's okay. If you grew up in a church where you weren't allowed to speak, you're not in your daddy's church anymore. You're in life-changing ministry. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. So it is uh, Genesis 19. Let us pick up in verse 9. Verse 9. Get out of our way, they replied and said, This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Now, if you don't know this story, I'm going to spare us all the graphic details of the story. But suffice it to say that there was a city named Sodom and another city named Gomorrah, that they were near the plain of Shinar. You can find them on that map in the back. If you wanted to see where Sodom and Gomorrah would be written, it's in the giant hole that is the lowest place on the planet Earth, the furthest below sea level known to exist anywhere. And there's a body of water over it now called the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea because nothing lives 
there. God was so upset with the city for the things that they were doing that fire and brimstone fell from the sky and drove it into the earth. And it scarred the globe today. You know, as people questioned this story, uh, they began to do studies of the floor of the Dead Sea. And when you get beyond the layers of salt and minerals, you know what you find? Building materials, pottery, civilization that was once there and is now gone. Well, the men of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded a house. They had evil intentions, evil desires upon the people that were in the house that are associated with the names of the city today. Verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The men inside were actually angels. And they rescued Lot. Lot went outside to reason with the people. And there was no reasoning. In fact, they intended to do to Lot what they intended to do to the men who were inside the house. And the angels rescued Lot. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters? Or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here. Because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that He has sent us to destroy it. You know, it's an amazing thing, as wicked as some things are that happen, whether they be in the United States or somewhere else in the world, we have not yet reached the place in modern times where we saw an entire pairing of cities driven into the earth by fire from heaven. But there is no promise that we will not reach that place again. Can you imagine? Because the Bible, it's easy to, to, to think of this in a galaxy far, far away in a time long ago and forget that these were real people. To forget that Lot was a regular guy who lived in a city, let's just say like, I don't know, San Francisco. Did I say that wrong? <laughs> He's somewhere out there on the left coast of Shinar and the city council is trying to figure out things like, is it okay for grown men to walk around naked? Or should they have to put down a towel before they eat in our restaurants? I mean, that's pulled from the ancient world, isn't it? That is pulled from this month's headlines in newspapers, right? So Lot is a regular guy in a city like that. Of course, he chose to live there. That says something about Lot. Yeah, his family pays a price for that. So he's living in that city. Two angels show up. The, the angels are apparently good-looking men. Because all the other men in the city have evil intentions toward those angels. So Lot goes out to reason with them and they say, no, we will do to you what we want to do to them. And Lot is, the actual Hebrew says, hard pressed against the door. The angel reaches out, grabs hold of Lot and pulls him inside. If you're Lot, how are you feeling at that moment? Relieved that you're saved, humiliated that you live in a place like this, that your neighbors are people that you can't reason with, that only want evil all of the time. Maybe... Well, like the Newer Testament says, vexed in your righteous soul over this. Now these angels look at you and say, you need to go get anybody that belongs to you. Is there somebody that you care about a lot? you got a son-in-law. Isn't it funny way I started there, Fred? Started with the son-in-law. I just thought I'd point that out. Is there anybody out there that you care about, a son-in-law? <laughs> go get them, because we're going to destroy this city. 
Would you take that word seriously? Yeah, yeah I think I would too. If two angels showed up and said, we're going to destroy Sugarland. I'm moving to Missouri City. Right? <laughs> so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is going to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Are you kidding me? How distracted do you have to be? How far off base do you have to be to have your father-in-law come to you and say, this city is about to be destroyed. Surely you heard about the ruckus at my house last night. We have to get out of here. And you're like, <laughs> that's a good one. He couldn't convince them. How many people have we talked to about the Lord and they acted as if it was a funny joke or something to let go in one ear and out the other? They disregard it. In fact, maybe they make it the punchline of their joke. But the same judgment has been decreed upon the world. And God has spoken to His people. And His Bible tells us about it. And everybody else, it's just kind of like a funny joke. You know, a fable that men make. I was told that religion is a crutch for women and children. Yeah, it sounds like somebody else heard that same line. We've made a joke out of it. And you know what? The people of God have not helped in this. And the reason that we've not helped is because we've been all over the map. This day excited for the Lord, the next day not so much. This day in unity, the next day in rebellion. This day serving God, the next day not. And we haven't helped. We've made it. One big joke. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. That's the same wording about the Noahic flood, where the waters came and swept them all away. Jesus said it would be that way in the last days. The righteous would be saved and the wicked would be swept away. When he hesitated. How could you hesitate? An angel is saying, hurry, hurry, waste no time. Man, you got to go. Grab your wife, grab your daughters, go. And he hesitated. What does that tell you? Lot had fallen in love with the city even though it was wicked. Now, we could pick on Lot all day long, and this is usually where sermons about Sodom and Gomorrah and about Lot go. Oh, how could Lot do that and those bad people? Let me ask you, how much hesitation would there be in you to give away your car? How much hesitation would there be in you to empty your savings account? How much hesitation would there be in you if we said, when you leave this building right now, go to Oklahoma. Don't stop, don't pass go, don't collect $200, go to Oklahoma. The man's leaving everything he'd ever known. It's been years investing in it. He had all the same attachments to it that you have to your life. Have you ever noticed that when there's a life-changing event, it has a way of drawing people closer to Jesus? Loved one dies, and what do we do? We all start going to church. There's a war in our nation. Church attendance rises everywhere. You lose a job. All of a sudden, your prayer life is getting right. Friends, the Word of God declares a judgment coming upon the world. And I want to tell you something. He said only a few 
will be saved. Did you know in the Noahic flood, eight people at all, eight out of the entire ancient world were saved? Eight. Did you hear that? Eight. As long as it's in a in, in a story a long time ago in an old book, it doesn't feel real. What if you live to see that? Eight people. The discussion that Abraham had with, with God over Sodom and Gomorrah is if there's 50 people, would you destroy it? No, I won't. Well, what if there's five less than 50? The Jewish people get negotiation, honestly. You know, he didn't say 45. He said, well, how about five less? You wouldn't destroy it for five, would you? Which, of course, is with 45. God said no. He works him all the way down. Our king cares, and he is not willing that any should perish, but to us, it's become kind of a joke. It's become kind of a joke because judgment's been lingering out there. So it gives us the impression we can do what we want to do. We can think what we want to think. We can act any way we want to act. And because somebody gave us a USDA stamp as a Christian, we're good to go. But the Bible doesn't teach this. And the reason the nation has fallen for it is because we have not read our Bibles. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. I want you to hear this. He warned them. He warned them and warned them and warned them. And you know what? They hesitated. And in God's mercy, he gave them a little shove. Now, praise God, that is a blessing. You know why? It saved his life. But mercy is not mercy if you plan on it in advance. You cannot count on the fact that God is going to make you be saved. When he spoke the first time, if you believed he was Lord, then you do what he says. If he has to speak a second time, you're already in disobedience. Don't believe that he is going to grab every human being by the hand and make them leave. It doesn't work that way. The fact that he did, honestly, is because God loved Abraham the way that he does, but that's another message in and of itself. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Are you hearing this kind of language? It's no joke. Hurry, flee. Hurry, flee. We have to run from the things of this world. Do you feel in your heart like this is a message that is down in the church's heart? We're fleeing the things of the world? No, if anything, we're running to the things of the world. We're as carnal as our neighbors are, and so they see no difference between us. My wife had a vision that's changed my thoughts about a great many things. One of them really is... I just don't feel like I have time to hang out and do the things that they do, whether it's in Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever city you live in. I'm busy about my father's business. He's given me a renewed perspective. If you believed that this was the last year of your life, how would you live it? Now let's suppose that in mercy's sake you get 30 more years. The fact that you got the mercy of the 30 years, does it mean that it was any different priorities that you would have if this is the last year of your life? Why do we put off the good that God has told us to do till tomorrow? Why do we do that? He said, do not look back. Of course, in verse 26, what's it say? Y'all read it to me. 
But Lot's wife looked back. She didn't really want to leave the city, but after many warnings, she was considering it, although hesitantly. Finally, an angel grabs her by the arm and makes her leave. Of course, her husband grabbed her by the arm before that. So now we're on a, or a third strike and you're out. They said, do not look back, but she looked back. And the Bible says she became a pillar of salt. It's kind of a joke when you go to the Dead Sea area. There's pillars everywhere, and people wonder which one is Lot's wife. Said, well, I don't know if that's true, Eric. I just have a hard time with all that. You didn't have a hard time with it, but I can assure you the principle is true. The Bible also says that if they had longed to go back to Egypt, they would be given the opportunity to return. And if you claim to be in Christ, but really long to live like the world does, you will get your opportunity. But I want to ask you, what drove you to the altar the first time? Was it because your life was going wonderfully? Was it because all of the parties, all of the things, all of the stuff that you had done had made you so happy? Yeah, I, I kind of doubt it. The biggest lying bumper sticker I've ever seen is the one that says, no fear. I believe that people are so gripped with fear that they're masking it with everything else. The one that at least is honestly a lie is the one that says, life is wonderful, people are terrific, and business is great. Have y'all seen those? We don't have the ability to properly assess our lives. The Word of God assesses it for us. It shows us what His thoughts are. Turn with me to Matthew 14. I know our church uses the Bible a lot. I could just stand up and share a funny joke in three points, maybe give you a poem. You would like me, of course you'd like me while you were on your way to difficulty, maybe eternal difficulty. <coughs> In Matthew 14, look at verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Now, I'm not trying to trick you. Why would you be scared if you saw a man standing on the water? This is not a trick. You can answer me. Because people don't stand on water. In fact, it must be a really supernatural thing if a human being is standing on top. I mean, if you go to get in the bath tonight, and when you step over and into the bath, you don't hit porcelain under your feet? That is not normal. Okay? So it is not a normal thing for somebody to walk upon the Sea of Galilee. But they're seeing it. And it frightened them. It is not normal for men to act in a supernatural or extraordinary, extraordinary fashion. And when it happens, it scares people. That's just the reality. It's much safer to stay in churches, religious institutions of any kind, where nothing supernatural happens, where nothing extraordinary happens, because we're more comfortable with that, you know? So this is the constant pressure upon God's supernatural people and His supernatural church is to become just a little more ordinary, a little more acceptable, a little more palatable. Couldn't you just think and act a little more like us? We could form some committees and run the church just like a business. That makes more sense to all of us, you know. But this is not what the supernatural word of God says. 
So they're scared because they see Jesus acting in a supernatural fashion. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you. I love how we question God's word. Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Think about these words for a minute. Jesus is acting supernaturally. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, give me the opportunity to act supernaturally. He says, come on. That call is still the same to the church today. It's exactly the same. He says, you want to know my thoughts? You want to know how I operate? You want to know what I would do in every situation? I've written you a book, a manual, an instruction for living. You want to know if I am who I say I am? Put it to the test. It works. You can walk as I walked. This is why Jesus said, any man who believes in me will do greater things than I've been doing. It's why 1 John says, we must walk as he walked. The invitation is the same. It always has been, but we kind of think it's a big joke. We're not sure that we're serious about it. We're hesitant. Even when people are pulling on our arm, we're kind of like, you know, I, I was comfortable over there. Not a joke, friends. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water. Before we go anywhere else, a supernatural man of God received a test, a request. If you are who you say you are, give me the ability to do this. He said, sure, come. Peter stepped out in obedience. He was doing exactly what Jesus was doing. You can read in your Bible. What happens next? Then he saw the wind. If he is looking at Jesus, you know what he was seeing? This is not a trick. Jesus. Jesus. When he began to look somewhere other than Jesus, he immediately begins to sing. What we dwell on, what we look upon, what we meditate on in a day will determine our destination. God has called you to something that is supernatural. And to get there, you must dwell on the supernatural. If what you want is ordinary, if what you want is under judgment, if what you want is so subpar that it is a regular human being, not a prince with God, all you need to do is dwell on your own thoughts. And you're already there. It's a short trip. Of course, first, or the book of John in the third chapter says, the sentence has gone out. The world stands condemned already. We are already in condemnation. We need the Word of God and its transforming power in our life to move beyond that. <laughs> Let's be honest. If you go then to the butcher... Right? We don't go to butchers anymore, do we? If you go to the meat department, if you go to the checkout lane, if you go to get your uh, Manny Petty, Jay, don't look like a Manny Petty kind of guy, right? Never know. There could be closet Manny Petty out there, right? When you go, wherever you go and you ask the average person, is the Bible the right way to live? The average person in the United States is going to intellectually agree with you. But then the better question is, then why aren't we doing it? Because it's a whole lot easier to acknowledge it and say, well, I know, I know, but then not actually do it. And we feel better because we know the truth. 
When the Bible says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. When it says that, that kind of know is different than our kind of know. It means to, in, uh, to experience on an intimate level. It does not mean to intellectually accept. And we've fallen into the trap of thinking because we know something, it's okay. It's not okay. The Word of God is that preeminent thing in our life that changes everything. Turn with me to Psalm 19. I think this will probably bring home our major point. In Psalm 19, let's look at verse 7. <laughs> if you're weary of turning, I'm sorry. But having said that, I gave you a place to take notes. Hopefully what you'll do is write down things that you can study in your own time. If you thought that you came to church to serve God, somebody lied to you. You don't serve God at church. In church is where you are trained to go out there and serve God. You do not come to church to get your weekly allotment of food. You come to church to be spurred on by your brothers towards the things that God has called you to do personally. The rest of the week is the time to continue to feed yourself the Word of God, to seek God's Word, to seek His will, and put it into practice, and it will change your life. In Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I know a few of us in this room have felt dumb at some time in our lives. And those of you that don't personally identify with that, then we'll preach on arrogance. <laughs> the Bible will make you wise. You know why? It will teach you God's thoughts. It is the embodiment of wisdom. I'm just going to tell you the, the, the way that it worked in my life. I learned early on to not tell people what I was quoting when I was in a secular environment. But in interviews and in the workplace, I simply did and said what the Word said to do, but did not tell them it was the Word of God. And I was promoted I was given jobs that I was not qualified for. Everywhere I went, I found blessing. They were always shocked that as young as I was, God seemed to have given me something special, but they didn't know He had given it to them too. It was the dusty book in their house. Then as God opened the, up, the door and I had opportunity, I began to share with people, sometimes favorably, sometimes unfavorably. But the Word of God prospered me everywhere I went. Why is the simple? The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. One reason that people don't like reading the Word is it shows that we're guilty. And when we see that we're guilty, that doesn't make us feel joyful, does it? So why does the Word say that it gives joy to the heart? Because there is no better feeling than having been guilty, <laughs> and it's been dealt with, and now you're free. Yeah, the way that the world deals with guilt is to push it out of your mind to simply not think about that. Of course, it comes back, doesn't it? So we drink some more, or whatever it is that we did. The Word of God will show you that you are guilty and show you what to do with it so that you can walk forward free from it. That is how it gives joy to the heart. God did not intend for human beings to carry around tragedy all of their life. If He did then we would all have a miserable existence. This is why the prophecy today was in line with the Word of God. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, for 
My yoke is easy. My yoke is the way of life. And my burden is light. I will show you what to do with that. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. Before we go on, this is one of those songs that we sing. We sing it a lot, don't we? I mean, you, you hear songs like, uh, Lord, you are more precious than, than silver. You are more costly than gold, right? Am I, am I lying to you or what? So, so you do sing those songs? Yes. So if it cost you some gold to come in here and sing it, would you? Yes. Well, you might. You might. But i got to tell you, the major battle in most people's lives, every person, and Jesus said it, you can't serve two masters, is the battle between hanging on to all that I believe is mine and losing control of my life and doing what the Lord has told me to do. Because we are terrified that if we do the things He says to do, we won't have what we need. After all, He wants us to be wise. That's what He said. Of course, wisdom is obeying His Word. You see, so we say that His Word is more precious to us than gold. But if you had gold bars in your house, would you take them out and look at them occasionally? How many of you have opened your wallet this week to look to see what was in it? Anybody checked a bank statement this week? Mm -hmm. Any of you got little text alerts on your phone to let you know every time money is spent or deposited? Jim, do you have those text alerts on your phone? <laughs> See, we pay a whole lot more attention to how much money we have coming in and going out, how it's spent. We pay a whole lot more attention to those kind of things, but we sing songs that say, Lord, your word is more precious than these things. Am I not preaching to anybody about that? Yeah. And then we get offended with places that share the word because they talk. Well, of course, we have to talk about the biggest idol in your life. How else are we going to get you for there's an 800-pound there's an elephant sitting on your chest? What kind of friend would we be if we didn't mention it? I'm not going to tell you what to do with it. I'm just telling you it can't be your master. The Word of God gives joy. It's pure. It's radiant. It gives light to the eyes. Psalm 119.72 says, The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of gold. Friends, think about that. If you could just trade your Bible, look down at the thing in your lap. Yeah, if you could trade that and I could give you thousands of pieces of gold, would you trade it? Now, one of you said no. Well, let's pretend you're not in church. Let's pretend we're just chatting in the break room, right? I said, thousands of pieces of gold, Gabe, for that book right there. You're like, I can buy more, right? Uh, with thousands of pieces of gold, I could go buy more. Isn't that a reason? Natalie, you're, you, we got an honest person. Right? Thank you. Of course, when we say your word, we're not just talking about this book. We're talking about when this book begins to speak his word to me. And you know what? That really is priceless. Of course, that can't happen if you're not reading the book. See, His Word that is flawless, that is perfect, all of those things, and I believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture, but His Word that is flawless is when His Bible gives you direction 
as if he was speaking to you. You know, this is what the church world's missing. We really could quote some scripture. We could go through a Bible plan, and, and maybe we've all done it. But what we're missing is that personal interaction where the word has begun to direct our life. And it is better than getting a because it got rid of guilt. It showed you how to love somebody. It repaired a relationship. It put you in right standing with God. That you would not trade for any amount of money. And the reason people don't know that is because they often have not experienced it. Maybe the only Christians they've ever met were the kind that haven't authentically experienced it themselves or have bought into the idea that they're now better than everybody for some reason. Nobody who is reading the Word of God daily can have an arrogant opinion of their own life. It cannot happen. In fact, the closer you get to Jesus, the more acquainted with your own flaws you become. When I was 18, I was the most righteous thing that was on the planet. At least in my own eyes. I knew about three things about Jesus, and I was doing them all. I didn't know that there was 300,000 things about Jesus, and I wasn't doing those. The other 297,000. I didn't know that. The more I learned, the more I found out I still got a long, long ways to go. But praise God, I'm not at all where I started. Psalm 139.17 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O Lord. The vast sum of them. God does not have just one thought about your life, CJ. It's not just one. He has a vast sum of them. His thoughts about your life are a little bit different than his thoughts about, say, Aqua's life. Isn't it a special thing when the God of the universe lets you know what he thinks about your life? The writer of the psalm said, that's precious to me. There's a vast sum of them. I want them all. Yeah. This is because he recognizes that the way that he thinks about himself may not be right. You know, have you met people that think of themselves too lowly? Of course you have. They're in this room. Have you met people that think of themselves too highly? Yeah. <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> I want to know how God sees me. And I don't think I can get that from a bumper sticker. I might not even be able to get it from the latest Christian best-selling book. Isn't there a, a risk? Isn't there a risk that if you're paying $24.95 for a book, they might just be telling you whatever it takes to get $24.95 from you? Isn't that a risk? Of course, not only did the Bible come to us free, it cost men's life to give it to you. There's no risk in that, it's definitely not going to tell you what you want to hear. Let's go to Luke 16. We'll close in the New Testament. Maybe. Y'all seem sleepy today. Luke 16. Let's start in the 10th verse. Cody's there. Are the rest of you there? Yeah. <laughs> Judah and I are reading the Word together. We've been doing that for a long time, but I wanted to be more intentional about it. I realized that if young men don't have structure in their life, then they're missing something. You can look at somebody who is an elder in the church and say, just be spirit-led, you know? And they probably can do that. They have got years of training their flesh to be righteous. They have 
absorbed the word in a way that through constant use has taught them to distinguish good from evil. But to look at a 14-year-old and say, just be led by the Spirit, you know, is irresponsible beyond belief. He needs some boundaries, some guidelines, some structure. You wouldn't look at your 2-year-old and say, hey, just be led by the Spirit, you know. Milk's in the fridge, I'll see you in a month. You know, that, that, that is absurd beyond question. The only people that would grind that axe are the ones that, that came into the situation with a real problem. So we set a schedule to read every day. I was shocked to find out, I've been reading the Word every day all my life, but I was shocked to find out that you can read 90 verses a day and complete the Bible in a year. That you could skip every Sunday, every single Sunday, because you're getting so much Word here on Sunday, and read only six days of the week. Read 160 verses a day. Start this week and be done before May. I was shocked. I had no idea. Thought, man, if I'd just been a little more orderly in this, I could say I'd read the Bible 12 times this year. Of course, that's never what God was interested in, is it? So before May is out, Judah will have read through the Word all the way through. And you know what? We're finding it takes him less than 30 minutes in a day. What is the excuse that we have for being Christians for 20 years and not having done that? It comes down to just, it really wasn't that important, you know. I was just fine with my own thoughts there. Are you all in uh, Luke 16, 10? Yes. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, will you? who will trust you with true riches? And if someone, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? By the way, uh, if it's not your property and you're running it, you're the employee, right? Or the renter or something. But you're definitely not the owner. Is that clear? Yeah. No servant can serve two masters. No what? Servant. We have a, uh, an issue to deal with. We are in an ownership society. We believe that we own things. And the Bible presents us as servants. The land that we stand on doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God, even if somebody gave you a deed for it. In fact, the very life that you have is on loan to you from God. It does not belong to you. You are a servant or a steward of it. See, this becomes very important because here, here's how it works out in the practical life of the American Christian. Well, I decided to give. 10% of my income to God. That, is, that, is, that, is that anything any of us would disagree with? Except that the Bible says 100% of this belongs to God. You are managing 90% of it. That's what the Bible says. Now that's easy. That's tithing. Let's take it to every other thing that you have in your life. Well, this is my house and I have decided to use it for the Lord. No, it is the Lord's house, and He has seen fit to let you use it for Him. See, we think that because our own arm earned this money, because our own hand did these things, that they are ours. After all, I work hard for it. It is mine. Of course, Deuteronomy 8.17 says, Do not say to yourself, My own arm has produced this wealth for me. 
It is the Lord your God who gave you the ability to do that. God, tell me we're not an ownership society. See, an owner thinks he has rights to everything. He can choose what he does or doesn't do. But a steward says, it was never mine in the first place. Here's a good question, parents. Do you own your children or are you their stewards? See, if you own them, you are, I didn't say peeved. It's better than the other word, peeved. When they make a choice you don't like. Right? Peeved. Yes, I can say that. Peeved. You, you, you are extremely angry when they are no longer adolescents, but let's just say they've turned 18 and by some stroke, some miracle of genius, they're actually adults at 18. And they make a choice you don't like. Because somewhere along the way, you say things like, but I changed your diapers. I gave birth to you. I fed you. I, 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 I have ownership when in reality that child never belonged to you. They were a gift from God that was intended to be returned to his will. Well, what area of our life could we not say this about though? See, everything in your life is something simply that you manage for God. You know who the only owner of anything is? God. He owns your life. He owns your children. He owns your house, your car, your bank account, everything. And the extent to which you say, no, I own it, this is why no man can serve two masters. You have just become a god to yourself. If there are areas of your life that are off limits to the Lord, if there are areas of your life that, you know, this is church and this is, this is something else, you've just found your idol. When I was preaching Wednesday night, I preached about Gentiles, goyim, gone wild. Of course, the story was about Israelites, but we have a way of looking at the Israelites' golden calf and thinking we have none ourselves. Of course, the Word of God will show you differently. We work to get our lives just so. We manicure our yards. In fact, there gets to be a stage in life where you've been disrupted so long through right, rearing children, right? The, the difficulty of having four rugrats that you're excited to get everything just right. And man, you've worked hard for it. You remember those white couches, Steve? I mean, this happens at all. We joke, we call them the golden couch. You work so hard to do this that suddenly you now feel like you own something. Everything that you have was supposed to be used for His glory, including your life. So why don't we go on mission trips? Well, it's not safe. Well, was it your life or not? Why don't we do this or that? Well, I won't have what I need. Well, if you are a servant, it's your master's job to provide for you. If you are the owner, well, then it's your job to provide for you. And I would be worried. Your arms don't look as long as his. No servant, servant, not owner, can serve two masters. Look at Luke 12. See, you only have to turn two pages to get to that. In Luke 12, verse 22, Then Jesus said to His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or about your body. That's good news for those of us with expanding waistlines. What you will wear. <laughs> do we 
take the Word of God seriously? How much time did you spend going through your closet today? Come on now. You got up to go to church. Did you not walk over to your closet and flip through garments to see what to wear? Have you ever not gone somewhere the Lord told you to go because I just don't have anything to wear? <laughs> yeah, I've seen that done before. <laughs> the Lord tells us not to worry about those things. You know why? If you're the pool boy at somebody's house and the pool breaks, you're not particularly concerned about it. You know that provision will come and you'll repair it. That's your job. It wasn't your pool anyway. It was just your job to take care of it. This is what our lives are like. We're worried about a great many things and our only job was to serve at the pleasure of our king. Now, if you rack your brain, you're really going to struggle to find people that you think are authentically living that way. Of course, that is biblical Christianity. It is. Now, this is why Jesus could say to the most religious people on the planet, only a few will be saved. And let's not forget, he died at the hands of the most religious people in the most religious city at the most religious time. You can make a decent argument for the fact that religion killed Jesus. What you will eat or about your body or what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Our king does not treat you like a worthless servant. He loves you. How many of you have eaten today? See, that's more than a lot of the world. Most of the world lives on a couple dollars a day. Most of the world does not get food like you get. When I met Mario, he had been fasting two weeks and didn't know when he was going to eat again. I've been places in the world for what we could collect from our pockets here today. Somebody could live on for a year. And he loves them. If he's going to feed them, how's he going to do it? We could rain it from the sky. Of course, he called you his body. He calls you his servant. See, authentic Christianity moves past what God can do for you. It starts moving into what you do for other people. That's when Christianity stops being a joke and starts being something that is real, that changes the globe. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Listen to this warning. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things. If all we can think about is what we work to earn to buy, going to work to earn to buy, so that we have what we need, we have just put ourselves inside of the pagan world. And remember, what you're looking at every day is going to determine your destination. God called you to do more than go to work to earn 
to buy. He did. If that's all he had wanted, he had left his people making bricks in Egypt. But he took them out of making bricks in Egypt, and one of the first things he did is said, take a day off. I just wanted to spend it with you. Your life is not about making bricks. It's about being in harmony with me. That's a revolutionary thing. It was so revolutionary that in the United States, we decided to take two days off every week. Did we spend those two days thinking about him? Are those simply the days that we go buy all of the things that we worked the other five days to afford? Hey, materialism has killed the church in so many ways. And it is so crept in that we don't realize we're powerless. It's time that the church returned to deeds. It's time that the church returned to an authentic relationship with his word. So I just don't know what the Lord wants me to do. But you read the Bible 15 minutes this week. Now, if you really wanted to know what the Lord wanted you to do, you could finish the New Testament in a week easily. I did it the week I was born again. I did it more than once the week I was born again. You know why? I had met Jesus and I wanted to know. The first thing I found out was that most people speaking behind these boxes had not been telling me the truth. The very first thing I found out. And like all new Christians, I was a little angry about that. So I went straight there and told them. You know what they told me? Stay in the system. Stay in the system. That's where the resources, the money is. I said, hell with the system. That's where it's headed. Destruction's coming. I want authentically changed lives. Matthew, why don't you come up here? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Whatever a servant needs when he is carrying out his master's business, his master provides. If Jorge's employer, which is an electric company sends him to Dallas to do something, they're going to pay to get him there. And if what he has to do is put 55 Unistrat straps up, then they're going to give him the Unistrat straps. You know why? They called him to do that. If they want him to bend two-inch conduit all day, they're going to provide the bender and the conduit. Our king will provide what you need when you are in his service. But all too often we say we're in His service, but we're looking back at the world, really wishing our lives looked more like theirs. It's almost like our life is becoming a salty existence. You know, our focus, what we dwell on, is going to determine our destination. There's simply no way around it. In the fourth chapter of Mark, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to speak to you as we close. There were four kinds of soils. Do you all remember that? Yes. One of those kinds of soils had a problem. There were weeds in it. And when the Word of God went into the soil, it was choked out. You know what it was choked out by? The worries of this life. The desire for other things. And the deceitfulness of wealth. Those three things. I have never found a more weed-infested soil than our home area. 
I get depressed when I come off of the mission field. I really, the jammer is my witness. I fight it. Because you just don't know how the love of things has so filled our lives that it dominates us. And it's because we are not meditating on the Word. When you go to a place like India, you crawl down into a valley and you meet a four foot tall Christian that is 20 feet tall in spirit. He has nothing, never seen running water or electricity. And when you pray with him, you feel the power of God in the room. You realize who's poor, who's rich. So Eric, I don't understand. Is it wrong for me to have these things? It's wrong for us to take ownership of everything and be a steward of nothing. It is wrong for us to accept this life, this stuff, as opposed to the other. And we've done it to pacify ourselves. The last TV that you bought, Nothing wrong with having a TV. But the last TV that you bought, if you're honest, did you buy it because it made you feel a little better? It's weird. We get a high off of purchasing things. Mm -hmm. You were meant to get that high off of accomplishing things for Jesus. So, well, I just had to get a new TV. Why? Did the other one break? No, it's just... You know, it's not flat. It's not 60 inches. And it's, I mean, do you see how clear this is? I'm, I'm not against your TVs. I'll come watch them. I like them. Okay? But when we get right down to it, we have substituted all of that for the real riches. And we've consumed our lives with it. I can tell you, Jen got a new car. Praise God. Got a new car. It won't be new to us in another month. It'll just be a car. Anybody in here live long enough to go through that cycle a few times? Yes. We'll go park it at Home Depot and knock the new off of it. <laughs> it's just a vehicle. We're always looking for the next thing to make us happy. We're sure if we get that job that is, is I mean, it's more. But the last one that was more than the one before that fix everything. It doesn't. It never does. The pagan world runs after such things. But you seek the kingdom and its righteousness and everything else will be added to you. This is what the God of the Bible is teaching us. I don't have time to read you Genesis. But I've got to tell you a man who rose to rule the whole world named Joseph never owned anything. When he's in Potiphar's house, did he own Potiphar's house? But he was the master of it. When he was in jail, he became the master of the jail. Did he own the jail? When he became Zophanoff Panea, Scripture says, Savior of Egypt. Did he own Egypt? He wasn't even Egyptian. He was an alien and a foreigner there, but he ran everything. This is our life. We're a steward of what God has given us. We own nothing. The world will begin to take people seriously who act like that. They will. The first thing that happened in the early church is they began to sell their possessions and help each other. And everybody took notice and it grew every day. And everybody had enough. Well, that sounds like communism. No, communism is a corrupted idea of it. What if rather than buying your next TV, you wanted to make sure Mario had enough food? What if 
because you were reading the word every day, you began to actually love your neighbors more than you loved yourself. See, that is real, authentic Christianity. Not carrying a Bible, wearing a suit, walking in a building and walking out the same when you came in. And it doesn't matter what they tell you or how good you can feel like a real champion when you leave. If your life hasn't changed, then what good is it? It does nothing for the kingdom. Let me ask you, if you were the poor man, what kind of Christian would you respect? The one who knew everything, who attended church perfectly, who looked pretty? Is that the one you'd respect? Or the one that actually helped you in your circumstances? Luke 11, 13 says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit? He will empower you to do what His Word says. That is the goal. That His power is upon you to do what His Word says. But you have to know what it says. We put a Bible reading plan on the back table. It starts today. It starts today, November 20th, so that if you read Genesis 1 and 2, two chapters, and Matthew 1 today and read a similar amount of scripture every day in less than a year by October of next year you have completed the Bible for most of you the first time in your life you could say you read every word of it but we have trouble with these kind of commitments we say yes and we do great for a week and then we forget this is because when a seed is planted Weeds grow up around you. The desire for other things, the deceitfulness of wealth, the cares and worries of the world begin to choke it out. Somewhere we have to make the Word of God the priority. We have to ask His Spirit to enable us to live it. And when we do that, I'm convinced the world will never be the same. You know how I could say that with such confidence? Because 11 little Hebrew boys most of whom were not incredibly educated, who had only spent three years being trained, took the word seriously, received the power of the Spirit, and because of their testimony about Jesus, when you give the date, you're testifying to the fact that they preached his gospel. You wouldn't know that he was born 2,011 years ago if it were not for them. They changed their world. Surely we could start with our families, our neighborhoods, those things. But before we start with anything else, you need to start with yourself. We're going to close in song. It's 12.40. I know what that means. Your butt clock has run out. Your stomach is growling at you. All of those things. It's 12.40, and I think we preached for an hour and maybe 10 minutes. I just would like to tell you, I'll be in India again this year, be in Germany, be in France. I hope to go to South America. I hope to go to some other places because I want to go meet the people that we support in their work doing that. But when I'm in India, they have no problem with six and seven hour messages. You don't have to be the best speaker. As long as you're reading from the Bible, it is like they're getting gold. So ask me why we don't see miracles here and I'm just going to smile at you. Because it hurts me to tell you. Every person in the room, every single person that came up that was sick, every single person 
didn't matter whether they had a physical tumor or something you could see, or something they couldn't see. Every single person got healed on my first trip. Every single one. Because the gospel works. It works. How many of you would give almost anything to be in that kind of setting? I saw a woman get out of a wheelchair in Mexico last year. I was more consumed with the fact that I didn't want to be there and thought maybe my family, I'd put them at risk being there. Abby was sick, I was sick, everybody was sick. You know what? That woman walked home pushing her wheelchair. Tell me the gospel does not work. It works for those who do what it says. Y'all stand up.